Hey, folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. This podcast is a project of Encuentros Latinx, an LGBTQ ministry in the United Church of Christ. I have some listener mail to share with you. Persida writes, I just wanted to say that I really enjoyed the Ilan Carlos podcast. It is so powerful and inspirational. Blessings to you both. Well, thank you, Persida. Thank you so much for writing into the podcast. It was great to have Ilan on the show and do such a deep dive into music and spirituality. You can email the podcast with any listener mail at encuentroslatinx at gmail.com. That's Latinx with an S at the end. You know, I always love throwing a book recommendation at you, and this time I simply cannot think of a more fitting book for this podcast, The Lesbiana's Guide to Catholic School by Sonora Reyes. First of all, that title. Need I say much more? I will say just a bit more, though. 16-year-old Yamilet is one of the very few brown kids at her new, mostly white Catholic school. She and her brother have just started going there, and Yami is hoping to get a fresh start on her life especially since her former best friend outed her to their entire school. Yami's goal is simply to survive Catholic school and not be gay, but it's Catholic school and there's a hot girl in her class, and I think we all know how that story goes. This book is charming, dramatic, sweet, and overall just a very well-done story. Yami could easily be any number of folks that I've had on this podcast, I highly recommend this book. I really, really enjoyed reading it. Speaking of books and stories, my guest today is one of my colleagues from the Latinx speculative fiction anthologies that I've discussed on the podcast before. M.G. Doherty is a speculative fiction author who has multiple upcoming publications, but I know her best for her story, Borders Where Their Bodies Used to Be, which is forthcoming in the adult anthology called Places We Build in the Universe. Borders and liminality are really a through line in our conversation about identity, and for you listeners of a certain age, we both try our very best to not make this the Sailor Moon podcast. Stick around to the end to hear an excerpt from Borders Where Our Bodies Used to Be, and let's get right into this encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Can you introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? Sure. Hi, my name is M.G. Doherty. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am a writer and a kind of lapsed visual artist. Love that. We will definitely be talking about all of that later. But for now, what country or countries do you and your family come from? My family comes from a like most people, probably a variety of different places, Mm -hmm. primarily Mexico and the part of Texas uh, that used to be a part of Mexico. I have a lot of family that just historically lived there before the border moved and also Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. And so what is a good memory that you have about 
this area that you're from. It's I'm sure it's a very interesting area. The just the fact that the border moved, but the people didn't. I'm sure there's a lot of unique stuff about that area. So what are some memories that you have about living and growing up in this area? I feel like there's a really unique experience that a lot of people experience when living in a sort of border area. And I love living in a borderlands area. When I was a kid, I remember we used to be able to take day trips into Mexico. This was before 9-11 and I didn't have a passport yet or anything. So it was really easy to just do a weekend or a day trip. Something that I think is unique to growing up where I was and probably other parts of the country as well, but something that I really noticed when I moved out of the South Texas area is like the little sort of Easter traditions we have here. We grew up doing like cascarones, which is where we empty out the little eggs and dye the eggshells. You might know this already, but you fill it with the confetti and then you crack it on your cousin's heads and your aunt's heads and your (laughs) grandma's heads. And everyone ends up covered in confetti and then it rains and the dye gets stuck to your skin. And it's kind of horrible, but it's really fun also. It's mostly fun for the children. The adults don't really like it. (laughs) Wait, so is it a plastic egg or is it like... No, it's a real real egg. egg. So you 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 make real... You crack the real eggs and you make something with the real eggs and then you keep the yes. shells and yeah, fill you the shells in a very specific okay. way so you're trying to so so this is the top of the egg this is the bottom and you're trying to crack it so that you only break so you end up with a little hole at the top and you okay. clean it out uh use the egg for something make breakfast and you dye the eggshell like a pretty color like a pink or a blue or a green because it's like easter colors it's a spring thing Uh, You Mm -hmm. fill it with confetti and then you sort of like wheat paste a little bit of tissue paper on top to seal it in. And then you have like a whole like dozen of them or however many. And then it's like a challenge on Easter day when you're outside, preferably to try and get as many of your relatives as you can before someone gets angry. That is quite unique. I have to say that I haven't heard about that particular tradition, although it's not completely surprising because with Latinx, Latinidad, there's like so many countries and experiences that it's not one thing. And what's really common in one culture is not necessarily in another culture. And then how familiar you are with that depends on like how connected you are with it, just all all this stuff. So I love when people come on here and they talk about something very fun and oddly specific like that. I think that is wonderful. And it's one of those things that like you wouldn't even think about how that would even be a thing if you're not in that culture or if somebody doesn't tell you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the first time I ever realized that this was not a universal thing that all children experienced. I was like 18 and I had just moved away from home for the first time. And my mm-hmm. college roommate sort of just randomly turned to me one day and asked, is it true that in Texas you crack like confetti eggs on each other's head? And I just had to have a sort of moment where I was like, you mean you didn't grow up doing this? <laughs> you know, it would have been funny if you carried that assumption that of course everybody does this. And so you're out of South Texas and you 
prepare your eggs and you like try to crack these eggs on your roommates or or whoever and just to see their reactions they'd be like what is happening to me right now why am I covered why is there eggshell in my hair right now (laughs) (laughs) wow okay Uh, this sounds actually really fun and I would I think I would like to participate in it a little bit I think I might get if it if people like hit too hard to crack the egg, that might hurt a little bit. I might get uncomfortable, but <laughs> so this term Latinx, how do you experience or relate to it? Um, is it something that you connect with, something that you struggle with? And this can be talking about the actual spelling that we use here on the podcast latinx specifically and or it can be about latinidad in general because all of that's super super nuanced so i'm curious about your specific entry points i guess into this experience good question uh i guess the short the short answer is i struggle with all of it a little bit although i do connect to being like Latinx, being a Latina. Um, Here comes an awkward pause while I gather my thoughts. That's fine. I did not, I didn't always struggle with being Latina and with sort of that, having that as part of my culture, I think it was something that I almost learned to struggle with. Like I remember at at a certain point, when I was a kid, I, I wasn't fully assimilated into like the broader, maybe more like culturally white culture of America. And at a certain point, I realized uh, that it might be easier to assimilate a little bit. And then, you know, time goes by. And I suddenly woke up and realized that I was kind of low key always wearing a mask that I had forgotten was a mask. And I just suddenly, it's not that I had ever fully lost any connection with that part of my identity, but I had lost sort of a sense of public connection with it because it Mm. felt easier to not have to own that and any of the like difficulties that might arise with that. And I think also something, I don't struggle with that quite in the same way anymore, but something I also try to keep in mind now is like you're listeners cannot see me, but I am a very light-skinned Latina. (laughs) And Mm -hmm, so I definitely do pass in public. And so something Mm -hmm. I try to keep in mind sort of almost in the other direction now is to keep in mind kind of like how much privilege I have and Mm -hmm. sort of the degree to which I feel comfortable owning that identity sort of almost varies by context. Mm -hmm. So if I am the only Latinx person in a room, then I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, I trust that like I am speaking to my experience and I like I trust in my own experience and my words and my memories mm-hmm. more. But when I'm in like a room full of other Latinx people, suddenly I'm like, okay, I would like to hear your experiences. Mm-hmm. Especially because my own experiences of being a Latina are very much kind of like a ebbing and flowing sort of experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I 
relate hardcore to a lot of what you said. Um, and I think a lot of light-skinned, white-passing Latinx people have a pretty similar experience where assimilation is the easy button. Assimilation is the thing that we kind of will fall into by default unless we like actively choose not to. I know I that was more or less my experience where I sort of spent a lot of years pushing down or downplaying the fact that I'm Puerto Rican because I was like, oh, well, I don't speak Spanish and I'm like so super white, so I don't really count. And I was telling myself this. And I was also living in a community that really does not have a strong like community Latinx presence. So it was super easy to just be like, yeah, I'm white. And I did that for to myself for like years, like most of my teenage years, I started feeling uncomfortable doing that in my college years. And then it took a long time to sort of deconstruct that and get myself out of that and to arrive at the place where I am now where it's like, I'm not fully white. When I was born, my baby pictures, that's not a white baby in those pictures. Like, but I'm also like you in that for the most part, I think that I pass as white. However, I also have a fairly common-ish experience of sometimes people being like, what ethnicity are you? Like they kind of sense that something is not completely white, but they can't quite place it. And my experiences with that have never been negative or uncomfortable and I'm not saying that is universal because sometimes those those experiences really are like negative and uncomfortable for people. So it's just it's really more of like it makes my day a little bit interesting when I have those mm-hmm. kinds of interactions. In fact, I just had um, recently I I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before. Maybe I have and I just forgot. But recently I was by recently I mean this was like several months ago now, but I went to this event that was mostly for uh, my dad's group of friends. And I stopped by this event. And these were a lot of a lot of people were people that I kind of grew up knowing because they were like music band type of people. So I show up to this event. I'm wearing this shirt that has an outline of Puerto Rico and it says Boricua on it, right? My mom got me this shirt for like for Christmas or whatever. And I'm wearing this shirt and I'm being introduced to this white man with actually some of the best hair that I've seen. I mean, this man (laughs) had this long, long red hair. It looked absolutely beautiful. And uh, anyway, so I'm being introduced to him, right? And he's like, oh, I had a girlfriend who was actually Boricua and it's uh, <laughs> y'all, y'all can't see, y'all can't see the facial reactions. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, the actually, oh, I, so I know someone who's right, right, right. I'm like, I'm like this entire white man is not saying this actually to me right now. It's like, I literally had this moment of like, I had to, it took a minute for that to like fully register in my head, like what was going on. And <gasps> 
I was like, I was like, yeah, I'm actually Boricua too. It continued. There, there's more. There's more. He's like, he's like, oh, so you were born on the island. And I was like, no, I'm diaspora. I'm like, my dude, like, this is the first conversation that I'm having with this person I was literally just introduced to. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. What and a terrible first impression for him. <laughs> So now my dad is like, he's present. He's like right there in, in this conversation. And he's immediately like, no, no, her mom is Puerto Rican. Like he's jumping in and he's like, like explaining everything at the same time that I'm explaining everything. And it's just like, like, it's fine. Like it wasn't a super big deal at all, but I just kind of, I just kind of went home after that. And I mean, not directly after, like I was there for, you know, an hour, a couple hours or whatever, hanging out, talking to people. And then I got home and I was like, that that's not an experience that I would have. I'm not sure if I would have had that experience if I wasn't wearing that shirt. And it's like, what I'm getting at with this is like, if I choose to not like declare my Latinidad, then people can not see it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but I'm, I'm in this place where I'm like, no, I'm not going to downplay it. I'm not going to say that you know oh I don't really count I'm not going to put all these technicalities around it I think that the the specific experience of the temptation of assimilation is a very like nuanced sort of place to be because the project of whiteness in the United States would love for you and I and for other white passing Latinx people to do exactly as we both did growing up to to assimilate and to, you know, let the world look at us and think, oh, there's only whiteness there and there's not anything else there. Mm -hmm. And so I think that and I think all of us to some extent go through, you know, whatever this process is of trying to both deal with this assimilation story, this resistance against assimilation, but then also the privilege that we have. The, like the reasons why I'm lighter skinned has to do not with individuals making choices per se, but like zooming out. It's like, yeah, because of the whole Mejorad La Raza thing and um, colorism and all of that. Like so, sometimes I like, I get really, I get really deep and I think about like, yeah, in a, in a really weird way, white Latinx people, like we, we exist because of a very color, like of colorism that wants to make everything whiter. And, you know, it's a weird place to, to be. And then from that standpoint, it's like, okay, then what does it mean for us to connect to ancestors and to honor ancestors? You know, so that was a whole, that was a whole little, little tangent there, but it's, but I think there's so much to unpack with it. And at the same time, like sometimes you're talking about how sometimes you're the only Latina in a given space. I'm, as far as I know, I'm the only Latina, Latinx person in my day job, as far as I know. And while I don't mind speaking to my experiences and, you know, I have a, I have an inside joke with my supervisor that I'm the most diverse in the company because <laughs> of, of um, well, this was... This was uh, something that happened 
to my supervisor and then she told me about it later. Um, this was a long time ago now, but we, we still laugh a bit about it. So somebody at work is talking to my supervisor who, um, and, and then this person was saying, oh, man, Taylor, she's the most diverse person I know because I'm, I'm pretty out at work about like being queer. Um, like I don't flaunt it, but I don't hide it either. And, uh, I'm Latina and I don't hide that, you know? So, so this person, and also I, I like to, cause I work in educational publishing. And so sensitivity, bias and sensitivity reviews for certain content, like that comes up a lot in our work. And I'm usually the person that people think of to sort of review things for that or to have that mindset for that sort of thing. So I get it. I get where this person was coming from and saying like, oh yeah, Taylor's the most diverse person that I know. The thing is though, my supervisor is literally a black woman. Yeah. Yeah. So the patience of your supervisor in that moment. Literally like, and she's telling me that my supervisor is telling me this story later. And I'm like, I'm like, no, this conversation. And I mean, of course, of course it happened, but I'm just like, I'm just like, no, no way. And so now we just have this inside joke that I'm like, I tell her all the time. I'm like, I'm like, okay, as the most diverse person in this company, here's (laughs) what, here's what I think needs to happen. I mean, my goodness. And so that's a little bit of, of a funny story, but it's like, yeah, I'm a very palatable version of diversity. You and I are very palatable versions of Latinidad because of our whiteness. Oh you know, and I think, God. yeah, that needs to yeah. be on a t-shirt or on a billboard or something. <laughs> I think I just had, you just had an epiphany for me. Well, please <laughs> speak to your epiphanies because I've been rambling for the past 10 minutes. I mean, I'm still processing that one, but I would agree with what you're saying in that, like, I feel like there's something about like daring to be proud in any part of our ethnicities that is not like perfectly white that Mm -hmm. seems to invite a sort of underlying combativeness or like defensiveness in people you like you wouldn't think that would be coming from like I remember when I first started to just barely reconnect with being Mexican-American and being Hispanic Mm -hmm. I started to notice these comments that my that people I was friends with would make. People mm-hmm. who were not Latinidad. And mm-hmm. like I would call them out on it and they wouldn't even seem to hear. Like just things like uh like sort of casual comments like, oh, why can't the people at that restaurant just speak English? We're in America. Hmm. Or why can't that Mexican family that lives next door to me drive? And like these casual comments Mm. that like just linking like ethnicity and culture to things that should really be unrelated. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. And also I want to point, remind both my friends of the past (laughs) and I guess the (laughs) listeners that all of these conversations are taking place in South Texas, which Mm. is a very Hispanic area. Mm -hmm. So it, it's generally just helpful to know even a little bit of conversational Spanish, even if you don't speak, I know conversational Spanish just enough to get by. Right. And so I don't know. It's just 
like once I started noticing that and calling it out and noticing it in people, it's just like, wow, I didn't like me realizing, wow, I didn't know that you held this underlying view. And I think you need to unpack that. <laughs> and I need mm-hmm. to unpack the fact that I'm just now realizing it, but you really need to unpack it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's both surprising and not surprising to hear that those types of comments abound in places like South Texas and border towns where you you would kind of think if you're not, I guess, I suppose if you're not from those areas, like, well, there's more of a of a Latinx presence there. So of course, there would be Spanish all over the place and all all this stuff. So you would think that the white people would be used to it because they're living there. But the white people are not used to it, are they? <laughs> no, in a way, I still feel like there's a little bit of underlying like us versus them in that white mm. people mindset. Mm. Oh, goodness. White people. <laughs> white people. We should oh, gosh. all continually be unpacking our like underlying mm-hmm. like, white supremacy. Truly, because it is so pervasive in how we are formed as individuals throughout this country. And like, it's to the point where it doesn't, whether you're a white person or or a person of color, like you've been affected by white supremacist structures and thinking and mindset, even in really small things. And so it's not to say that, oh, you're a white supremacist. Like, of course, there are people that are are really like that, but it's more to say that this is the water that we're all in. And yes. it's so it like in a lot of ways, it's invisible. So it's difficult to notice. And all this is saying is like, it's not it's not your fault how you grew up. It's not your fault who your parents are. It's not your fault. Like whatever, like you could there's so much that you couldn't control about your circumstances, how you were educated family members or friends that had influence on you and your beliefs like there's a lot that's not in control so because sometimes with the whole like white fragility thing white folks get really really uncomfortable with unpacking this stuff because they feel so personal they feel like it's an attack on them being a good person on an individual level and I think that it's just part of the process, honestly, that white folks go through to, to unpack. Like that's always a stage in it. But the important part is to move through that stage and then to realize that, hey, like I can I can confront these things, these these beliefs, and I can change how I think about stuff. And I can be embarrassed and ashamed for things that I said or did or thought in my past. But I can realize that because I now want to think differently about it, that I can be a better person moving forward by understanding and seeing these things. And I feel like so many people in our society want to stop at the fragility. They, they feel the fragility and they stop there and they don't want to go any further because they're like, oh, you're just making a big deal out of everything. And, and, and you're saying that I'm a bad person and all this stuff. And it's like, no, like you're, it's pointing out that this is the effect that all this stuff has on, on people. And it's important to, 
it's important to, to unpack it in order to have better relationships with your fellow human beings. Yes. And I think maybe something like they're not even considering is like that fragility feeling. That's a sign that like the work is working. Like if you are mm. not recognizing things in your past and places where you have messed up, like I think we've all messed up at some point. Mm -hmm. Like I know I've messed up in the past. And I think it's important to recognize where you made mistakes, where an underlying belief or like a white supremacist belief in your mind has hurt someone in mm -hmm. the past. And undo that and don't repeat it. Mm -hmm. Like right. getting to the point of recognizing the error is a critical part in just growing as a mm -hmm. person. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what experiences do you have with respect to spirituality and religion and any sort of like identity formation? <laughs> How does religion and spirituality fit into all the stuff we've been talking about for you? Ooh, so many ways, uh, especially with my sexuality. Uh, I was raised Catholic. I was, my parents were Catholic. They're Parents were Catholic. It's a very long-standing Catholic family on both sides. Uh, mm -hmm. But I went to Catholic school for 10 years, never really quite fit in, and uh, for a variety of reasons, but one of which was that I started like sort of unlearning. Like the thing with Catholicism and the way I was raised in it is it was very much about demonizing LGBTQ plus people. And like demonizing women's sexuality and like teenagers' sexuality. And like, I don't know, uh, hmm, awkward pause incoming. <laughs> That's fine. Embrace uh, it. Yeah, I left Catholic school when I was, uh, I left after eighth grade because I had already started unlearning some of the beliefs that were being actively taught to me still in religion classes and in the sermons at mass every week. And I left because I didn't really feel like I could stay. I didn't think that their beliefs aligned with what I felt to be right. And then, you know, surprise, surprise, six months later, I realized I was pansexual. <laughs> and I was very grateful that I had already started unlearning some of that toxicity because I think I would have probably struggled a lot more with that realization had I not already realized that the people who were telling me that being gay was a sin, like them telling me and other kids that was serving an idea more than it was actively serving the young people they were speaking to. Hmm. And I think I sort of, I was able to sort of coexist, I think with being Catholic, like being my own sort of rogue Catholic for a while. Mm -hmm. And then I think sort of like in the same way that I, once I started owning the fact that I was a Latina, I started noticing things that friends would say. Uh, I started noticing uh, after same-sex marriage got legalized in the United States, I was really happy. Mm -hmm. But then I started noticing things that people I respected were saying about it. And then I think that was sort of mm -hmm. the moment where I realized that I, not even a realization, just sort of like, oh, I don't even, like, for what little connection I still had to Catholicism at that point as a quote unquote rogue Catholic, 
Mm -hmm. Like I didn't even really want to take part in that anymore because I didn't know where the bigotry stopped and where my real beliefs were supposed to begin. Hmm. And I think that is sort of still where I'm at in my spirituality mm-hmm. journey, just very frustrated. I I do kind of, okay, I have a secret sort of goal slash dream. Okay. For far in the future, I'm definitely not here mm-hmm. yet. Okay. But okay, so like thinking back to other queer Catholic kids and kids in other like super strict religions, mm-hmm. like I would love to be able to have a presence in those communities still, mostly because I would like to be able to be a safe space, like a safe space adult for other Mm -hmm. queer kids in those spaces. Mm -hmm. Because I don't feel, I don't think that, and I'm going to speak to Catholicism here because that's what I know. That's what, you know, my family is still Catholic. A lot of my friends are Catholic Mm -hmm. still and actively devout. Uh, Catholicism is not changing fast enough to keep up with the number of people, young people especially, who are realizing that this dogma is outdated and doesn't reflect our values today. Mm -hmm. And I feel like even though it's 2022, we still need adults who aren't going to out their students to that student's parents. Like the fact that it's still a fight in 2022 to have any sort of books in the school library that feature any hint of queerness. Like, mm-hmm. And that, I'm not even making that up. I know that yep. for a fact because yep. I'm still on the fringes of that community. Yep. But it's okay. So secret goal. I'm getting off track. <laughs> Be a safe space adult. Right. For kids in those communities, because I didn't really have anyone who could be that safe space when I was a kid. My safe space was anime forums on the internet. <laughs> that was my safe space. Oh, oh and in, in the in the mid 2000s, right? Because we're about yes. the same age, I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. I just I just went back to the past a little bit. Um, Listen, I, I, too. listen okay real talk pretty much every queer millennial or like older gen z i know we love sailor moon like sailor moon is it i have not met i mean i've met queer folks that maybe they're not into like anime or whatever that's that's fine Mm -hmm. but pretty much every every queer person i met who's my age or like a little bit younger if they like anime or at any time had a weeb phase sailor yes. moon yes it's because I oh think my it gosh so well to the experience of like realizing you have a secret and not mm-hmm. knowing how to tell the people in your life right and at the same time you have these all kinds of like ridiculous aliens coming from different moons in the future to destroy tokyo yes. You have ancient evils from uh, a thousand years ago that are rising again to also specifically destroy Tokyo. Like, R.I.P. Tokyo uh, without Sailor Moon because... (laughs) Oh, it would have fallen like seven times by the time they get to like season five. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. Uh, Sailor Moon. I was actually... This was several years ago now. I was at... um, it was General Synod 
for my UCC people, General Synod in Milwaukee. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was Milwaukee, which I call Chillwaukee. But anyway, <laughs> we were there and uh and one night some some pals and I from the con we went to this we went to this chill gay bar. It was like a Wednesday night, so there was like a movie, they're playing a movie inside and then there were people hanging out outside. We we were outside. I I see this guy there that has a Sailor Saturn t-shirt and it just like I wasn't expecting to see that. I was like I was like, excuse me, is that Sailor Saturn? And they were like, yes. And we just had a little moment. And it's like, yes, gay people love Sailor Moon. <laughs> like, we just love Sailor Moon. <laughs> but gosh, so mid-2000s anime forums for me was I was on, get ready for this. I was on a forum called the Christian Anime Alliance. Please it was, tell me it more. Was, it was for anime fans who were also Christians. And at the time, it definitely was a space that I needed for a certain period in my life because there definitely was, certainly back then, I'm not sure, I'm sure it's kind of still around now where it's like, wait a minute, can I be a Christian and watch this anime stuff that has all of this magic and it comes from this non-christian nation like legit for real like if you grew up in a you know what i'm talking about you grew up in a strict religious home yeah you grew up in a strict religious home and like you can't watch spongebob i mean i could watch spongebob but i'm just saying like some folks they can't watch spongebob SpongeBob. some folks can't can't play can't play pokemon you can't watch pokemon you can't like anime in general um fantasy reading fantasy books like oh my Ooh. gosh like pretty much every everything cool that i liked was like mm, that's witchcraft mm-hmm. which is not it not even what actual witchcraft is but you know <laughs> <laughs> it's anything um, that's unfamiliar right right exactly so so this forum was actually a, a pretty cool space i'm still friends with people that i met on this forum we're all not part of it at all anymore we're like hella deconstructed and like (laughs) the more than one of us is queer from that space in that time love it yeah yeah it's the same thing with as going to a christian college like you know yes but that was my my space in the in the mid-2000s was like yeah you know because i i was i was able to have a community of people with the same interests as me but then also understanding this like weird tension of having this religion or this specific manifestation of a religion that even dictates what types of media and fiction that you're like allowed to be into or that you should be into there's all this like kind of qualification of like well is that really godly is it really edifying your soul if you're watching sailor moon is it influencing you to do things and i'm like i mean I want to make a joke about it. It's like, is it really edifying to your soul to watch hentai? And I'm like, look, for some people, for some people, it might be. I don't know people's lives. It's not, it's not necessarily my life, but like, (laughs) oh, we should not go down the, we should not go down that route too much, but, um, oh my gosh. And now, now I've, uh, now I've completely lost track of, uh, of what we're, what we're doing, where where we're going, but the Sailor Moon edify your soul yes it holds a special place in my heart actually the manga i'm slowly collecting the special editions of the manga the manga is not 
that good. Like, to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you, like, I mean, listen, I it's Sailor Moon and I'm going to love it and I'm going to make excuses for it. But I'm sorry, the Black Moon arc is just not good. It's <laughs> it, it, it's just not. Black Moon arc is the first one, right? No, the Black Moon arc the is the second one. one. Black. So it's in the manga. It's the what is it? The Dark Kingdom arc is the first one. That's, That's with Queen Beryl and yeah. everybody. The second arc is the Black Moon arc. That's with Crystal Tokyo and the oh, whole like future one. thing. Chibiusa comes in and she, I that's hate right. Chibiusa. She is, I cannot stand her. She's um, an acquired <laughs> taste, maybe. Oh my gosh. And her whole plot line is like extremely problematic in that arc. Um, oh and God. It's like it's, it's anyway. The memory I forgot This I is had. not... <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then the Infinity about, Arc, yeah, yeah, the Infinity Arc, which is the arc I'm going to read next, I know that's like some of the best Sailor Moon. That's like the best in the anime and I think in the manga too, f- from what people say. So um, anyway, this is not the Sailor Moon podcast, but um, <laughs> but we are talking about fiction and stories and well, especially speculative fiction. And so one of the cool things about having you on this podcast, and in fact, the way that you and I met is that we both have stories coming up in some Latinx science fiction and fantasy anthologies. And so I guess I'll start by giving a little bit of a background of the project. Any listeners who have listened to my episode with Lauren Davila, which was a few months ago, she is the editor of these anthologies. So you might have heard this before. But for those of you who are completely new, Lauren Davila is like the anthology queen. At this point, I'm like, if there's an anthology coming out and Lauren is not the editor, I'm like, who? What is this anthology even doing? Why is it? Why does it even exist? Because Lauren pretty much, pretty much Lauren has like 20 anthology. Okay. It's not actually 20 anthologies, but like, it's a lot. It's it's a lot. So yes. So over, over a year ago now, uh, she sent out a call for submissions on Twitter. She wanted to put together an anthology of Latinx speculative fiction. So what that means is science fiction, fantasy, horror, there's also romance too. And romance usually isn't speculative fiction, but it's generally more generally genre fiction. So genre meaning you can go to the bookstore and you can go to the romance section. You can go to the fantasy section and the sci-fi section, as opposed to like literary fiction or general fiction, which is usually just called fiction. Whereas anything with a, that's a genre is called genre. It's just, this is all marketing stuff. So anyway, Lauren wanted to put together these anthologies of genre fiction from Latinx writers. So she did that. You applied by sending her a pitch for a story. She went through the pitches and chose which stories to go in these anthologies. And so I have a story coming out in the young adult anthology that she's putting together. And you have a story coming out in the adult anthology. So why don't you tell us? So I guess name, what is the name of the adult anthology that's coming out? The adult anthology is called Places We Build in the Universe. And your story is called? My story is called 
borders where their bodies used to be. And is it, what genre is it? It's romance, but it's romance that takes place about a hundred years from now. So what would that be like a fantasy romance maybe? Yeah. It's like a fantasy romance is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, there's a lot of genre blending, I think in a lot of the stories that are in both of the anthologies. I haven't read them because my whole thing is like, I want to wait until they're all in their final form, the way that everybody else wants to have their stories. Although I suppose now we're pretty much finished with the edits for everything. It's being sent off to the publisher as of this recording. So I probably can peek in and those are going to be the final versions of of the documents. But we're super excited about it. And it's cool because even though these are two separate books coming out, they're kind of all together in the same project. Like all of us authors in both of these anthologies were in the same discord that Lauren created. She really made this community around these stories that we're telling. So before, I guess, before we get like too into this anthology specifically, I want to talk about yourself as a writer. Mm-hmm. And that's such a, such a big question. Um, I'm trying to think of how we can go into this. What is it about speculative fiction that, like why speculative fiction? Because you went to, you have an MFA, right? Mm-hmm. So you have that like more classical literary training too. And I think that seeps into your work because I've read some of your other work and I'm like, yeah, you have an MFA. I mean, I don't, I don't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not offended. I just the funniest <laughs> sentence I've ever heard. And it's, you know, it's probably true. <laughs> Let me, uh, trying to explain this for my listeners who aren't, in the author space, it's hard to quantify, but an MFA is a master's of fine arts. And it's basically the most advanced, like formal degree that you can get as a writer. Although I suppose maybe somebody out there is a PhD in, I don't know if there's a PhD in writing, but anyway, usually these types of programs that you go to these schools for, they focus on very literary types of fiction, sometimes to the detriment of genre fiction. And so it's kind of this, I'm trying to think of like, what whatever you would call a literary novel is stuff that you would see more often in an MFA program, as opposed to like, reading fantasy or science fiction or, or whatever. And so there's a certain... <laughs> There's a certain way uh, that people that have MFAs and sometimes you can get like this really flowery language or, or whatever, the, or oh, these sort of like abstract, yeah, abst- abstract types of characterizations. Like you have, I know you have this one story where the character is a volcano and it's like a coming of yes. age story about a volcano. And that's like, that's the type of thing, but it's, it's like a very like metaphorical type of, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, but that's the type of thing that's like, yeah, that's definitely coming, feeding a lot on this more literary tradition, but yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So then I guess all of this is to, is to come around and, and say like, you have this MFA experience and yet you're, you're like kind of combining that with this genre, like speculative type of, of stuff. So how is it that you arrived, I guess, at that point as a creator? Well, I guess I sort of lucked out in the sense that I realized sort of late when I was doing my undergrad degree, also in writing, because I am that kind of hyper-focusing person, what kind of writing I wanted to do fiction-wise. 
And so I sort of cheated and I asked one of my professors, like, okay, if you had to like give me a super short list of schools that could help, that could give me the space to develop this kind of like writing voice or this kind of style, where would you recommend? And so they gave me like three schools. I applied to like a super short list, got into about only half of that super short list. And uh, the school I ended up going to was a very sort of like, they are not primarily a writing, like it's, it's, I don't know, uh, it's CalArts, California Mm -hmm. Institute of the Arts, which is primarily known for their like their experimental animation, their traditional animation. It's where the creators of Gravity Falls went to. And like, there are Mm -hmm. some people who like worked on Amphibia or Owl House, etc, who I think might have also gone there. So like, they're known for their visual arts. And, Mm -hmm. and the writing program is good. But in terms of money that the school puts into it, it's also kind of an afterthought. Uh, so I, by going to a school that didn't focus, like that isn't one of the like best MFA programs in the country, mm-hmm. I feel like there was a certain amount of freedom to explore different genres and to figure mm-hmm. out like what kind of flavor or shape your kind of writing can be. Mm-hmm. So I, I went into that with sort of ideas already. And then while I was there, I just sort of kept developing that and To answer, uh, I guess, the other part of your question properly, uh, why speculative? I think it's naturally what I lean towards when I'm writing, but I also think it's because I'm leaning towards it because it feels like the most natural way to speak about what I want to speak about in my writing, which is a lot of my, I feel like what I'm writing about a lot of the times is not to be cheesy, but I'm writing about love in all its different forms, I'm writing about like loving people on their bad days and loving the earth even when we've like crossed the point of no return and we've irrevocably like fucked up the planet, like love the planet anyway. Uh, sure, there might be like 80 species going extinct every day, but that's no reason not to keep trying mm-hmm. to save <laughs> other species. And that's no reason not, there's no, you know, the government's getting more fascist every day, but that's no reason Mm -hmm. not to keep investing in community and to keep caring for the people you love in your life. And that's sort of like what I'm circling around all the time, 24 seven in my head. And I guess speculative feels like the most natural form to write about that. I guess because I'm asking myself questions and I'm posing ideas that I don't think to me they're not necessarily always speculative Mm -hmm. but when placed against like maybe like more classic literary fiction or like general fiction it's definitely not engaging with reality in the same way Mm -hmm. like just engaging with reality the way I'm engaging with it in my own head which isn't always about what can be proven like it's not always about like I'm trying to think of a good example here it's not about whether or not dolphins have six arms right it's about what do they do with those six arms do they hug each other do they hold each other like I'm interested I guess in like the why of things Mm -hmm. 
Right. No, that that's a perfect example because the best speculative fiction, like the speculative part is just that's that's the skin. That's the wrapping around the actual stuff going on. I think that six armed dolphins probably hug each other. Maybe they arm wrestle and fight each other. But to, to give a little bit of a, of a more um, serious example, um, there's a great young adult duology, the Dread Nation duology by Justina Ireland, which is speculative historical fiction because it's historical fiction in that it takes place in the Reconstruction era of the United States, but with zombies. And so the the speculative element is the zombies. Like the speculative stuff is the thing that clearly doesn't exist and probably couldn't exist. But by placing that in a story, what it allows you to do as a writer and what it allows the reader to experience is like, all right, suppose this is true. How does this highlight or change or exacerbate or make better issues that do exist in reality? Becky Chambers writes stuff that takes place on spaceships thousands of years in the future or whenever whenever Wayfarers takes place it's like super distant there's all kinds of, of aliens or or whatever but what she's actually writing about like it's not the attractive part of it or the, or the meat of it is not the technology in space per se it's not necessarily the all the different alien creatures, they're, they're there because it's like, well, this is how, how do cultures interact? How can cultures interact in, in a better way yes. than they do now? What is it? What does it mean? I just recently finished reading uh, To Be Taught If Fortunate, which is a novella by Becky Chambers. And you have this space crew. They're thousands of light years away on all these different planets. And they're pretty much a queer polycule. And it's like, does our sensibilities from Earth about sensibilities that we may or may not have about how relationships are supposed to work between people, does that really matter when you're thousands of light years away on an alien planet studying the biology there and you may or may not be the only humans left because Earth got all messed up because of a geomagnetic storm? Like having these situations, like, of course, it's really it's pretty far fetched to have this type of situation but then you make that situation in fiction and then you have these characters interacting with each other and then it kind of makes you think well can relationships in reality be different than what we what we always think they absolutely have to be all the time these hard and fast rules that we might have about how people are allowed or supposed to interact or engage with one another is it really as set in stone as it seems to be and i think speculative fiction is really a great way to explore that. And so both of us are super stoked about these anthologies coming up. If you like romance and horror and sci-fi and fantasy, and if you want to support indie presses, both of these books are being published by small independent publishers. One of them is Be Infinite Publishing, who's publishing the adult anthology, and they are a Black-owned business Black-owned publisher. They focus a lot on uh, highlighting Black stories. Um, so they're the publisher of, of the Young Adult Anthology. And then it's I think it's Flower Press and Be Infinite Together is doing the adult. Correct me yeah, if I'm wrong. it's Flower Song Press in association with Be Infinite Publishing. Or right. I might have 
transpose that, but it's an it's an in yeah. association with type of publication. Mm-hmm. They right. are actually based at Flower Song Press is based in South Texas, actually, in the town, mm-hmm. one of the towns where I used to cross over into Mexico when I was a child, which is a just sort of funny yeah, thing I discovered recently. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's that's fantastic. And well, speaking of fun coincidences, your story in in the anthology has a character named Carmen, and so does my story. Although my Carmen, my Carmen is not a main character. Your Carmen is a main character, and so I, I don't think this ended up happening. But I just always said that it would be hilarious if if we had like one or two other people in the project who also had Carmen's in their story, it would just be a little conspiracy. Like, okay. It would be so funny. It would be, it would be, it would be my cool. day. Yeah. Yeah. We could have an entire special interview segment that is simp- just about like the inner life of our Carmen's. Yes. Yes. I have to think a lot about that. Cause yeah, like I said, mine isn't the main character of my story, although she's, well, I'm not going to spoil my story. But y'all have to read and find out. What I would like to invite you to do is to read your story that's coming out. So, so again, give us the title of the story, and the name of the anthology. And generally, we don't have a set publication date right now. Last I heard, maybe mid-November, but nothing set in stone at this point. Look for these books to come out this fall sometime at a, at a point in time. They will be out. They exist. It's real. I have seen the young adult cover and soon I hope we can see the adult book cover, like the book covers. And it's so good. And I'll I'll have more to say about the um, covers at a later time, but we are very excited for this project. So please introduce this excerpt that you're reading for us. Okay. So this is my short story, Borders Where Their Bodies Used to Be, which is being published in the adult, that's the next anthology, Places We Build in the Universe. In the flying saucer way station, the invisible woman is pinching the edges of a persimmon pie. This is Carmen's favorite time of night. The jukebox croons her into the witching hour, and the diner is usually empty. No lost and weary road trippers stumbling off Route 66 for a late night meal. She can dance, laugh at the jangle of invisible bracelets, feel hollow echoes against her wrist bones, and spin wildly to the beat of the latest AI jingles while spoon stirring an ambitious recipe. Why not? With no one here, the diner is all hers. No George to worry over her, like she's still that scared 20-something who just woken up invisible and decided to camp out in her car behind his way station. Like she hasn't spent years carving home into the bones of this place. Like this isn't just as much her way station now as it is his. The door flies open with enough force that it bangs against a vinyl booth. A bundled up stranger stands in the threshold. Is this the place? They call, stumbling to a counter stool several feet away from Carmen. Their eyes dart around, searching, and they spot Carmen just as she clears her throats and waves a gloved hand, sticky with fruit syrup, bracelets twanging. The stranger jumps. Another day, another startled customer. This it? The local way station? 
The stranger gestures out the diner windows where the neon sign is almost blinding in the darkness. Flying saucer way station. Dining, fuel, and shelter for all. You off-world friendly? So, they're a space traveler. This way station hasn't seen a non-terrestrial for a long time. Can I get you something to drink? Carmen asks, tossing dirty gloves in the trash. I've got just about everything standard in this region. Cokes are serve yourself, machines in the back, but no horchata this time of night. Not really any hot food right now either, but I've got an apple pie in the oven, a persimmon pie about to go in, and can make just about anything else in 15 minutes. Coffee, says the space traveler, who looks jittery already. Coffee, Carmen repeats flatly. Ten minutes ago, she poured the last of the coffee into a mug for herself and placed it on her personal warmer to enjoy after she finished the pies. This stranger is going to take her caffeine? Fine. 4 a.m. coffee it is. This traveler has interrupted her recipe experiments, and now they're going to steal her coffee. Hearing the annoyed edge, the traveler examines Carmen, or rather the disembodied clothing that seemingly nobody is wearing. The highlighter yellow ringer tee, the cropped fishnet hoodie, the light-up sneakers. It's the clothing of someone who needs to be seen. Even the red apron is frillier than necessary for a manager in training slash 4 a.m. waitress. It's the rare customer that doesn't spend the first several minutes yelping about, why the fuck can't I see you? because interplanetary traveling is relatively normal these days, but an invisible woman breaks their reins. Carmen swings out from behind the counter, careful to guard her personal space because nobody else will. Where are you coming from? She asks, aiming for friendly as she sets down the warm mug. The traveler doesn't answer, but finally drops their gaze, grabbing the coffee and gulping it greedily. That mug warmer is Carmen's from college, and it doesn't mess around. The coffee must be blistering their tongue, but they don't stop drinking. Now it's Carmen's turn to study them. In an orange hoodie and puffy pants that hiss when they move, they aren't some earthbound vacationer needing a 4 a.m. pick-me-up because they're still adjusting to 24-hour days. This traveler's curls are sticking up everywhere, not in the casual cool style a tourist would wear, but in the I haven't brushed my hair in three days and I'm not going to try now way. They look like they walked out to grab their mail and instead impulsively hopped a rail to another planet. A glance out the window confirms they haven't left the vehicle parked. The traveler sets down the cup, lips red from the heat. Let's try this again, the traveler says, looking in the vicinity of Carmen's face. Hi there. You can call me Lee. They, them, climate scientist extraordinaire. Thanks for the coffee. Lee aims their hand toward the end of Carmen's sleeves and misses. So Carmen meets Lee in the middle, notices how clean and how perfectly filed their nails are in contrast to their sloppy ensemble. I'm Carmen. She, her. I'm the caretaker of this way station. Technically, that's George but he announced his informal retirement last year and gave Carmen a title to match all the responsibilities she's taken on. And well, 
Carmen has lived on Flying Saucer's second floor for five years, so this place has felt like hers to love for a long time. Lee grins, bright as a star. Nice to meet you, Carmen. And I'll leave it there. So you'll have to read and find out about how this meet cute mm-hmm. plays out. Mm-hmm. I love how the vibe of what you shared with us really ties into what we were saying before about how the speculative part of the speculative fiction is is a skin. It's an important skin. It's an interesting skin. But take the bones of this story, what you shared of this, and set it in a coffee shop in 2022 and suddenly it's literary fiction and suddenly it could be like oh this is a prestigious like thing or whatever but set it 100 years in the future and talk about ais and spaceships and it's like oh that's science fiction and we're too literary and good for that and it's like man like you're focusing on the skin of a story and not the meat and bones of of a story and so i'm a little a little bit petty sometimes about any sort of pretentiousness in the world of books and genres and things like that. Well, thanks for sharing, for reading this, this excerpt. I, I mean, I want to, I'm looking forward to reading your entire story. I'm looking forward to reading all the stories in both of the anthologies. Me too. I want to give you the opportunity now to let people know about other work that you have coming out, where people can follow you on social media, all that good stuff. Sure. So if you are in, if you are specifically interested in South Texas folktales or folktales in general, you should consider pre-ordering their ghoulish reputation. It's coming out. Well, as of now, it's being, it's planning to come out in October, 2022, and it is being published by Dark Lake Publishing, which is based in both India and the UK. And the theming around their ghoulish reputation is just it's a, it's a folk horror anthology. And my short story, Close Your Eyes and Stay Forever, is going to be published in that. And it is about a South Texas folktale I grew up hearing about La Lechuza, who is like a ghost witch who preys upon, one, drunk people, two, people alone on dark roads at night, which haunted me as a child. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really looking forward to it. Consider pre-ordering if that sounds like your thing. Also, if you are a fan of Taylor Swift at all, or pop culture writing, uh, the Swifty-themed anthology Kiss Your Darlings will be coming out. It will be out as of the time this podcast episode released, so you can purchase it from Only Magazine. It's called The anthology is called Kiss Your Darlings. And I also have a piece in that, which is a total break from everything I've been talking about speculative wise, although it does have vampires in it. So, but uh, yeah, it's a hybrid poetry thing featuring some vampires and monster hunters in the background. It's mostly about breakups though. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) social media. (laughs) If you would like to follow my every thought and or updates on my writing, uh, you can follow me on Instagram at MG Doherty and on Twitter at MG underscore Doherty because I lost the battle for my original username with another MG Doherty. (laughs) Oh, 
Too bad about that. Well, it's the same thing with me for Instagram. Although I, I chose my Instagram name dropping the last two letters mm-hmm. of my last name because I thought that was fun. But then I actually realized that someone else has my full name. And it's one of those things where like they haven't posted in oh. four years or whatever. So same, same with my Twitter situation. <laughs> I'm ready to like duel to the death for it. <laughs> All right. Well, a lot of stuff to look forward to. What a great meandering conversation (laughs) that we had thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me sharing your work talking about all kinds of subjects we went everywhere today didn't we we? did but we had a good time (laughs) absolutely thanks so much for listening to today's show please rate review and subscribe on apple spotify or wherever you're listening to this On behalf of Encuentros Latinx, we hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.